we are picking up where we left off last week in the book of Acts. I think, what's up? I think that uh, we might be done, huh? We'll see how this goes today. But we are at the very end of the book. And if you remember how the whole thing started, it was this ascension of Jesus Christ, right? Like he's raised from the dead at the end of the Gospel of Luke. And then the beginning of Acts is Jesus talking to the church about what's going to happen next. And he ascends to be with the Father. And uh, he makes promises about the coming Holy Spirit. We ought not forget that. And then we have this entire narrative that is just the experience of God breaking through in miraculous ways over and over again in ordinary lives. And I want us to hold both those things in tension as we kind of consider the end of the book of Acts, like um, that God is breaking through in extraordinary ways in ordinary lives. And that's what I think we have to come to grips with. I think often we have a tendency to read the Bible and go, oh, those were holier people than us, right? They were different. But if you look at the book of Acts, we've read it together, they've been repeatedly uh, surprised by the way God is moving amongst his people. And I say that specifically because they would understand God moving among, amongst Jewish people, but to move amongst Gentile people, which most of you are, was a real shock and a continued conversation about what that means. And actually, we're going to kind of end up in that same place this morning in the book of Acts. So these, these breaking through in extraordinary ways um, through ordinary people just like us. And we ought to consider that as we look at the book of Acts, right? Not uh, to think of ourselves rightly, and to think of God rightly, more importantly. So my question as we begin this morning is like, so if you were telling this story of the early church, remember the whole book of Acts was a letter to Theophilus, right? Um, my, you know, in my previous book, Theophilus, he says, right? Now this is a continuation of the story, the history of the church, the early church. And he's trying to tell a story to this one who's learning about Christianity. I wonder, if you were writing the story to Theophilus, how would you end the story? How would you put the final period on the final sentence and sign your name and send it off if you were Luke. Well, today we're going to experience the end and what that looks like. I'm going to do what we always do at Family Bible Church. We're going to start in Acts 27. I'm going to pray, and then we're just going to work right through the text this morning. So if you would pray with me. We do this because it's God's holy word, and we experience God differently through Scripture than anywhere else, and he inspired it to be written, preserved, and now for us to understand it, right? So we all can pray that God would help us understand it. So pray with me if you would. Father God, we thank you so much for the opportunity to come and to know you, and we thank you again, Lord, that you would even hear our prayers, which we don't deserve, that you would be giving us an ear, that we could speak to you freely as those that you love and that you're listening to. And yet, Father, what we, we ask this morning is that you would give us wisdom, that you would impart your knowledge into our ordinary lives, that you would have us um, have eyes to see what your scriptures say, ears to hear, and uh, hearts and minds to believe and live it out in a practical way in our lives. And Father, we, we say this over and over again at Family Bible, and, and I say it over and over in my prayer life, but uh, this is not something I can do alone. This is not something we can do alone, but we depend upon you for it. And yet we know, Lord, you are good and you keep your promises. And so this morning we ask you to fulfill your promise, to provide wisdom when we ask. Would you inspire us to understand your word? Would you inspire me to proclaim it well? And would you inspire us to live it out well together? We love you so much. We thank you for the time we have now to spend together thinking with you. In Jesus' name, amen. 
So Acts 27, verse 1, and we're just going to start and roll through here. When it was decided that we would sail for Italy, Paul and some other prisoners were handed over to a centurion named Julius, who belonged to the Imperial Regiment. We boarded a ship from Adiratinium, uh, about to sail for ports along the coast of the province of Asia, and we put out to sea. Sorry, here we go. Uh, Aristarchus, uh, a Macedonian from Thessalonica, was with us. And there's not a lot to say here except to say that they are on their way to Rome. You remember, this is the promise over and over again to Paul. You will testify in Rome. There's twice now that God has assured him that that will be his destiny to, to appeal, uh, to make an appeal for the gospel in Rome. And he sent along this trip uh, on, by boat. And, and this is maybe one of those parts of the stories of the book of Acts that you may have heard about but not known you heard about necessarily. Um, I'm not, I can't remember many times people have actually preached this, but I've heard the, the narrative of what we're going to hear today. But there's this dude who's sent along with him from Thessalonica called Aristarchus, and that means a great leader. He's a Christian, and he's traveling with Paul. And I'm not sure why he's named in particular here, so I don't have anything to offer except to say that he's, he's, his name says something, right? He's a great Christian leader sent with the Apostle Paul toward God's ultimate purpose in, in Paul's life. Picking up verse 3, the next day we landed at Sidon, and Julius... And Julius remembers the centurions, try to keep these names straight real, you know, this morning. Um, in a kindness to Paul, who's the prisoner, if you, if you remember this, uh, allowed him to go and, and uh, to his friends that they might provide for his needs. And so they show up in their, in their travels, and the centurion, who's in charge of, a, of like a, a, portion, a portion, like a regiment, I think it is, of, um, of soldiers, takes kindness on Paul. Now, I want to remind us that Paul is currently imprisoned. Um, he's been threatened by his Jewish brothers and sisters. He's appealed to Caesar, right? And he's going to the big house. Like, he's going to go and have to face, he's been put on the ice for two years in prison without, you know, getting a trial. And now he's being moved along that kind of process. But this is a bad time, I would think, in Paul's life. I would think if you asked Paul what he wanted, he would say, hey, I want to go and you know, preach the gospel. I, I want to keep doing what I was doing before. I want to go to Jerusalem and worship in the temple. I want to do these things that are very important to me. And yet Paul is stuck, as we talked about already here. And this, is, this brings up my first point. I just want to mention as we cruise through here in verse 3. It says that Julius did this as a great kindness to Paul. Now I would say, there, so that there's always a kindness to be had. Paul here is late in his journey He's been suffering for the gospel. He's been imprisoned. He's been beaten and tortured. And yet, in the middle of all those things on this journey with Julius, he's shown kindness by his captor. The word here is the same word that we get for um, philanthropy or philanthropist, right? It's a kindness displayed to someone because they are human. So if nothing else, the Apostle Paul is given a grace because he's made in God's image from the centurion who's in charge of his, his captivity. And so there's this reality, I just want to say, that in our lives, no matter how bad things are going, and this is, so what's the applicable point? And I think, I've been trying to do this this series, and we'll talk about this in a minute in a different way, but we have a tendency to think there's nothing good happening right now. There's no grace being displayed. I don't know if you're like that at all, right? But there's a tendency to think all is lost or this or that, right? And, and woe is us. But the reality is that in the midst of struggle, there is a kindness being demonstrated by God if we have eyes to see it. And I'm not talking about making up kindness and just saying, oh yeah, but look at, you know, trying to invent something. I mean, really in your heart, because see, trying to convince other people there's a kindness is, mm, 
you know, what's the point? But in your own heart, in your own soul, to be able to step back from your life and say, you know, God, I know you're good. Show me what good you're doing in this situation. And invariably, there's some kindness that is demonstrated to us in those moments. Often it will take us until after the fact to recognize it was a kindness, right? But there are kindnesses all the same. And we ought to correct that voice in our head that says, there's nothing good happening. There's nothing co coming from this as positive. And here in the case, we see, again, what we've seen throughout the book of Acts, which is hospitality by the brothers and sisters in Christ for Paul, but a kindness demonstrated uh, by the centurion uh, toward him for no good reason, right? There's no reason he has to be kind to Paul. All right, picking up in verse 4 then. From there we put out to the sea again and passed to the lee of Cyprus because of the wind, the winds were against us. When we had sailed across the open sea off the coast of Cilicia and Pamphylia, we landed at Myra in Lycia. There the centurion found an Alexandrian ship sailing for Italy and put us on board. We made slow headway for many days and had great difficulty arriving off of Snidus. Something like that. Uh, when the wind did not allow us to hold our course, we sailed to the lee of Crete opposite Salmon. We moved along the coast with difficulty and came to a place called Fair Havens near the town of Lycia. Much time had been lost and sailing had already become dangerous because by now it was after the fast. And so there's kind of some knowledge about seasonal travel and this is becoming the hard season. It's kind of the equivalent of what we'd have like a hurricane season, right? You don't go during hurricane season. And so traveling had become fast. The wind was not in their favor. And so look what happens in verse 9. So Paul warned them, men, I can see that our voyage is going to be disastrous and it's going to bring great loss to ship and to cargo and even to our lives. Verse 11, but the centurion, that would be the same one that showed kindness a moment ago, instead of listening to what Paul said, followed the advice of the pilot and the owner of the ship. And so basically, there's been a demonstration that this is not going to be easy, right? That the winds are against them. They're trying to get somewhere. And, and I don't know if you've ever spent time on a boat. Like, um, it, it can be like this beautiful, placid experience of like how wonderful life is. And it can very quickly turn into the most terrifying, overwhelming, your life's about to be over experience in no time flat. We see this all the time, actually, right? It goes from a beautiful Sunday outing to a terrible day um, in the water. And so this is like that situation. So they've been trying to sail, and they've been pressing on past the time of sailing. And that's just, I want to say this, and this is an interesting maybe thought, because here Paul's a tent maker, right? I mean, that's what he does for a living. But he has enough sense to say, hey, we ought not press on. This is going to be bad for us. It's going to be bad for the boat. And it's going to maybe even cost us our lives. He says it in verse 10. Men, I see our voyage is going to be disastrous and bring great loss to ship and to cargo. All things are being said. Here's what I want to say about it. Uh, common sense isn't always common. <laughs> you know, I think my grandpa told me that first when I was a little kid. He said, you know, common sense ain't that common. He was a farmer, <laughs> so he liked to kind of drop those little nuggets of wisdom. And, uh, and we act like it ought to be. We act like on the face of it, it should be obvious. Now, who overrules him in this m moment? Um, the, the owner of the boat and the pilot of the boat, the two people who probably should know better than anyone that this is not going to go well if they keep pressing on, right? 
Now, some of you might be more theologically minded. You might say, hey, wait a minute, wait a minute. Paul has continuously had visions from God, and he has been right in his visions that God's given him, right? This is what's going to happen. That's what happens. But here it seems that Paul's just addressing the obvious issue. <laughs> Sometimes you don't need divine intervention to show you that this is not going to go well. And, and Paul addresses that concern. But it's not held in common. The owner of the boat who has a lot to lose is like, let's press on. The pilot. And what is that? In hubris? I mean, have you ever done, have you ever seen someone do something in life that you, you just go, this isn't going to go well. And they go, no, 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 I got it. I got this. And you just shake your head and go, this is not going to go well. Often, huh? Yeah, <laughs> like getting tased. This is not going to go. I appreciate the medical concern there. <laughs> uh, yeah, and hubris to press on. That's a great point. Hubris to press on. I got this. Uh, I'm more excited about the ride, honestly. <laughs> anyway, so, so um, there, there's this idea that, that um, it's not all that common. And, and you would think that if a tent maker could see this is not going to go well, that maybe the ship's captain or the ship's owner would say, hey, let's, let's slow down. But they don't. They press on. So that's one way in our life that we often think, hey, we know what's going on, right? A common sense. It's common sense. And maybe it's not so common at all. The next thing, though, comes up in the very next verse. Um, so verse 12. Since the harbor was unsuitable uh, to winter in, the majority decided that we should sail on, hoping to reach Phoenix and winter there. There was a harbor in Crete facing both southwest and northwest, right? So it's an open harbor, basically. When a gentle south wind began to blow, and see, there's the moment. There's just enough of an opening. It's like, hey, this is going to work out just fine. Um, they thought that they had obtained what they wanted. Hmm? And so they weighed anchor, and they sailed along the shore of Crete. Before very long, a wind of hurricane force called the nor'easter swept down from the island. The ship was caught by the storm and could not head into the wind. And so we gave way to it, and we were then driven along by the storm. As we passed to the lee of a small island called Cauda, I'll say that, Cauda, um, we were hardly able to make the lifeboat secure. When the men had hoisted it aboard, they passed ropes under the ship itself to try to hold the ship together. And fearing that they would run aground in the sandbars of citrus, citrus, they lowered the sea anchor and they let the ship be driven along with the storm, right? So they're literally just like hooked into the water and being driven along at this point. Verse 18, we took such a violent beating from the storm that the next day they began to throw the cargo overboard. On the third day, they threw the, the ship's tackle overboard with their very own hands. And when neither the sun or the stars appeared for many days and the storm continued raging, we finally gave up all hope of being saved, right? So they've gone from saying, Paul saying, hey, this has been a bad trip so far. We should probably stop, right? To them saying, no, let's press on, right? And then they have this experience where all these things begin to unfold and it doesn't go well. But there's an interesting thing that I don't know why I'd be mentioned here in verse 12 because you have already the ship's owner who's agreed. You have the ship's captain who's agreed. They're overriding Paul and his common sense that this probably, we should probably just take a breath here. We're going to get to Rome, settle down. And they press on, and it comes in verse 12. It says this, Since the harbor was unsuitable winter, the majority decided we should sail on. And so, the majority is not always right. And this is a weird thing to talk about, especially in our context here in the United States of America. 
Um, we believe, uh, fundamentally, that the majority can't be wrong. Right? I mean, I know what you're thinking right now. You're thinking, no, Bill, I believe the majority can be wrong. Okay, fair enough. And that's true. But fundamentally, I think in some recess of our being, we think if we get enough people together, enough people to think it through, we can make the right decision, you know? And so we think the majority is right. The majority is right. I'll tell you a little story about this. I mentioned to you a few weeks ago, we talked about um, trying to acquire our secure financing. And uh, when we were talking to one of the banks about the financing issue, they looked through our bylaws and they go, you don't have voting at Family Bible Church. And we're like, yeah, we don't have voting. And they're like, well, that to us is a non-starter. A church has to have the right to vote so that they can say what they want done with the money. And we explained to them, and maybe you don't even agree with this. It'd be interesting to hear your input on it, right? But what we have experienced, Family Bible Church started from other churches, and we all come from our own experience. But we found, and I wasn't part of Family Bible Church starting, so I don't have a stake in this conversation, right? But what we found, what I found in other churches, is that the majority rule is used to kind of drive the church places that maybe God doesn't want the church to go. Um, I'll tell a brief story. I remember one time, and this is just a little story. I remember one time I was in a church filled with brothers and sisters in Christ. I was a new believer. And um, there was an issue that was before the church. And we couldn't get unity on it. We couldn't come to an agreement about it. And tempers, you know, began and people began to get emotional, as we all do, because we think we're right, you know. And there was not a lot of grace extended. And then there come a moment for a morning for a business meeting. And the business meeting was packed. And they took a vote. And there was a bunch of people who voted for something, a bunch of people voted against something, and a bunch of people who abstained because they, they were just over this whole situation, right? Fine. But then when all was said and done, the majority won by a narrow margin, okay? And in the moment, I was like, well, there you go, it's settled. I mean, really, it's settled, so that's it. But brothers and sisters in the same church, the same little church, began to get from the pews and high-five the people on their side. And it seemed so wrong. It seemed so wrong. That somehow, because they could make a decision and get just enough people, and believe me, there was politicking happening. <laughs> you know, there were people trying to swing votes. It's so weird. We live in a culture that does this, right? And for us, we go, no, 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 it's a good system. I'm not saying it's not a good system for our country. I'm not saying that at all. But do you see how it can lead to divisiveness? So we're talking to the bank about it, and we go, we've experienced a lot of divisiveness because of voting, not a lot of unity. Well, what do you guys do? We press for consensus. We really want input on things. We want to talk about things. We want to hear input on things. And we're not trying to run off in our own direction. If anything, I think at Family Bible, we get blamed for waiting too long for God to do something. God, make it clear. God, bring the people together that you want here. God, for your purpose. And I'm not saying churches that have votes don't have that. That's fair. But isn't it interesting how the majority can be wrong? In a minute, we're going to find out there are 297 souls on that boat. 297 and so in the moment of crisis, the moment of deliberate, uh, de deliberation, they said, let's vote. I don't know how many boats you've been on, but usually the pilot of a boat doesn't take a vote. <laughs> you know what I mean? Usually you go where the pilot wants to go, or the owner. They'll put you in harm's way. 
But in this case, the majority was wrong. And all these implications came from it. All these things came to pass. They were throwing over the cargo. I want to remind you that the cargo was part of the reason. This wasn't a ship that's supposed to get Paul and the other people to the destination, right? They just tagged along. They found a ship bound for Alexandria. The ship was full of cargo that needed to be delivered. And in the middle of the crazy storm, they're throwing property overboard. Can you imagine a scenario like this in the current day? Right? You ever seen those great big ships that go come from China with the containers on them? Can you imagine them getting so desperate they start dumping just millions of dollars worth of product in the ocean to save their own lives? But that's not the worst of it. Then it says that they took with their own hands the tackle and started throwing tackle into it. A few of you are fishermen here. Here's the deal. If you're on a sea voyage and you want to feed 297 people, you probably want to keep the tackle. You probably want to keep the tackle. But they don't. With their own hands, fearing for their lives, they, would, they threw all the tackle into the sea as well. They're trying to look. They've already got the boat like wrapped up with cord. They're trying to lighten the load. They're trying to anything they can do, anything they can do to be saved. And then verse 20, it says, When sun or stars appeared for many days, the storm continued to rage about them. We, we gave up all hope of being saved. Man, they're done. They're like, we're doomed. Talk about a bad decision, right? I mean, they get to there and they're like, this was the worst decision of our lives, all of us. And there's an interesting thing about the majority being wrong. They all recognize it, yeah? We gave up all hope of being saved. Who did this to us? We did it to ourselves. See, we're going to turn the narrative here about what God does. But isn't it interesting? Do you feel that in our own situation? There's this reality that we believe fundamentally we are right. And I'm not, I'm with you in this. I believe fundamentally I'm right about things. But here's the problem. If we got everything the way we wanted it, our lives would be such a mess. If, if we, you ever, you ever think about that? Like, God, just give me what I want. Just give me what I want. If God actually relented and gave us everything we wanted as humans, our lives would be a disaster. It would be bad for us. We'd be caught in the storm. And all the stuff that we thought we were trying, we'd be throwing it overboard. We just got to survive. But God doesn't do that. He doesn't give us everything we want. And, and so we find ourselves in a situation. Um, again, you, you know, we can get despondent about the state of things in our life. But listen, who did this to us? We did. <laughs> who made this mess? We did. <laughs> who voted for this? We did. <laughs> and so you find yourself in the middle of the storm. So, so what happens? What do you do? Verse 21. After the men had gone a long time without food, so they're not eating anymore, right? I don't know why. Maybe they can't eat. They don't want to eat. Paul stood up before them and said, Men, you should have taken my advice <laughs> not to sail from Crete, and you should have spared yourselves all this damage and loss. I mean, can... Paul gets an I told you so moment in the Bible. I don't know. Okay. Um, But now, verse 22, I urge you to keep up your courage. Listen to Paul's message. Because not one of you will be lost. Only the ship will be destroyed. Here it is. Who intervenes in the moment of crisis, in the moment of drama? Who's the one? After we made all our best decisions, who's the one? Verse 23. Last night, an angel of the Lord, of God, of uh, whose I am and whom I serve, that is God, not the angel, right? Whom I 
am and who I serve, stood beside me and said, Do not be afraid, Paul. You must stand trial before Caesar. And God has graciously given you the lives of everyone who sails with you. So keep up your courage, men, because I have faith in God that it will happen just as he told me. Nevertheless, we must run aground on some island. This is a story you probably know about, right? Shipwrecked. That's what we talk about with this. But here's, the, here's what you, you got to catch in there. All hope is not lost. You know, I said earlier we have a tendency to kind of act like, oh, woe is me, and oh my gosh, you know, how, what good is coming from this, whatever. There's a tendency to be so despondent. If I had encouraged you something this morning, encourage you in this, that you would not believe the lie that all hope is lost. That's a lie. That's a lie. No matter how bad your life is going, no matter how many obstacles you have, no matter how much the storm is raging around you, listen to me, all hope is not lost. You look around our culture and you, you think about what are people doing the things they're doing, right? And we all partake, partake in it. We all see it. We all, you know, feast on it. The craziness and the chaos and the divisiveness and the hatefulness. And, and then we, and we internalize it and we begin to get all crazy and the storm is happening inside of us, right? And then that little voice starts going, you may as well quit. You may as well give up. You may as well surrender. Can I talk about something really serious? If you've been paying attention at all, and I know that you have, suicide is rampant. Rampant right now. People who we love dearly get to the place where they say, there's nothing to live for. Listen, as believers in Jesus Christ, as believers in the gospel, as believers in the resurrection, as sure as I'm standing here today, that we'll be standing before God, we ought to have some part of our soul that presses back and says, no. You know, part of the tragedy that we all experience after someone takes their life is that that, that God-given um, light, and as it says, how could they believe the lie that all hope is lost? It's a lie. Are things going badly for you right now? Perhaps, yes. Um, are there lots of stuff against you? Yeah, for sure. Is all hope lost? Absolutely not. Absolutely not. Oh, listen to me. And how much you want after the fact to go and find that person at moment of crisis and say, no, it's not hopeless. It's a tough deal, but it's not hopeless. And begin to speak God's truth into it. These men, 297 men on this boat, were ready to give up everything. And Paul says, brothers, men, don't believe it. You will not lose your life. You will not. You will survive it. I want to disconnect a little bit because it's easy when it's somebody we love, right? It's easy when it's somebody we love and, they, and something happens and we say, oh, that's so tragic. But what about the person that you really wouldn't care for? I've been so shocked when I hear the st stories of strangers, people who are far from us, right, who I don't know personally in any way, and, and you hear that they've taken their life and you go, how did they get there? How did they get there? There's a cautionary tale here. We, any of us, can get to this place of despondency. We ought not. Listen, as believers in Jesus, we ought to be the ones intervening. If you want to do something for somebody, show up in a time of difficulty and say, listen, all hope isn't lost. 
You know, there's still a way forward here. You're still sucking wind, right? You're still breathing. You're still living. God is still with us. The sun is still shining. I mean, we can literally believe, we can come to a place where we don't even believe anything good is happening, and it's not true. It's not true. You know what the Bible says about the enemy of God? It says he is fundamentally a liar. When he speaks lies, he speaks his native tongue. He fundamentally lies to us. What do we do? What did Paul do? Listen to the angel of God. Listen. All is not lost. You're not going to die in this boat. There's a way forward. I hope we can hear that. We ought to listen more to the voice of God than the voice of God's enemy. And that's, that's the tragedy. That we end up listening to the enemy more than listening to the one who made us and whose image we are made. So keep your courage because I have faith in God that it will happen just as he has said. That's Paul's testimony. God is going to work this out. There is going to be a blessing in this circumstance. Verse 26, there were implications. Nevertheless, we will run aground on some island. So it's not like it's going to be easy even now. Verse 27, on the 14th night, we were still being driven across the Adriatic Sea when about midnight, the sailors sensed that they were approaching land. They took soundings and they found that the water was about 120 feet deep. A short time later, they took soundings and they found that it was about 90 feet deep, so it was getting shallower. Fearing they'd be dashed against the rocks, they dropped four anchors from the stern and they prayed for daylight. Man, what a moment in the boat. Um, in an attempt to escape from the ship, the sailors let the lifeboat down into the sea, pretending that they were going to lower some anchors <laughs> off the bow. So the sailors were like, we're going to save ourselves. <laughs> you know, we're going to abandon ship and save ourselves. And then Paul said to the centurion, he's still there, and the soldiers, unless these men stay with the ship, you cannot be saved. So the men are about to save themselves, and he said, unless these guys stay with us, you won't be saved. And the soldiers then cut the ropes that held the lifeboat and let the lifeboat fall into the sea. So now they're stuck on this boat. The lifeboat is gone. They've, you know, they pulled up earlier. And um, this is the way I would interpret this. This is interesting that Paul says this. God's plans are very specific. I want to walk through. If, if, if you walk out this narrative that I would not think to tell in the book of Acts, there's this kind of tightrope action where Paul and the, and the apostles are navigating this path that God has put before them, but it's not super wide and clear, right? He says you're going to Rome, but there's this kind of wandering aspect of it. And here in this moment, you can see again, there's a very particular way that Paul says it. In verse 31 again, unless these men stay with the ship, you cannot be saved. So the soldiers cut the ropes and held the lifeboat uh, and let it, flip, uh, let it float away. Verse 33, just before dawn, Paul urged them all to eat. For the last 14 days, he said, you have been in constant suspense and having gone without food, you have not eaten a thing. Now I urge you, take some food. You need it to survive. Not one of you will lose a single hair from his head. And after he had said this, he took some bread and he eucharistoed to God. He gave thanks to God for it in front of them all. And he broke the bread and he began to eat the bread himself. You can't miss the imagery there. I'm not even going to spend time on it, but right, you get it. Verse 36, they were all encouraged and ate some food for themselves. Altogether, there were 276 of us on board. So there's the number. I think I was off by a few. 276 souls on board. When they had eaten as much as they wanted, they lightened the ship by throwing the grain then into the sea. 
And when daylight came, they did not recognize the land, but they saw a bay with a sandy beach where they decided to run the ship aground if they could. Cutting loose the anchors then, they left them in the sea, and at the same time, they untied the ropes that held the rudders, basically being blown out by the storm. And they hoisted the foresail to the wind and made for the beach. But the ship struck a sandbar and ran aground. The bow was stuck fast and would not move, and the stern was broken to pieces at the back of the boat by the pounding of the surf against it, so the boat's falling apart. The soldiers then planned to kill the prisoners to prevent any of them from swimming away, and escaping but the centurion wanted to spare Paul's life here it is again and so he kept them from carrying out this plan he ordered that those who could swim would jump overboard first and get on land and the rest were to get there on planks or on pieces of the ship and in this way everyone reached land in safety everyone was saved that's remarkable right everyone was saved we're going to press on here in 28 once safely on shore then we found out that the island we were, was on was called Malta the islanders showed us unusual kindness. And there it is again. At the end of this crazy journey, the islanders who lived there were unusually kind. And that's the same word, right? Philanthropic. They were kind toward these other people because they were image bearers. They recognized it. They built a fire and they welcomed us all because it was raining and cold. Paul gathered a pile of brushwood and as he put it on the fire, a viper driven out by the heat stuck itself on his hand. Woo! When the islanders saw that the snake was hanging from his hand, they said to each other, this man must be a murderer or, uh, because, or because he escaped from the sea, but justice has not let him live. By the way, look at justice as capitalized. Justice was a god that was worshipped and that God would strike you down, right? And so justice had not allowed him to live. But Paul took the snake, shook the snake off into the fire and suffered no ill effects from the bite. The people expected him to swell up or to suddenly fall over dead. But after waiting a long time and seeing nothing unusual happening to him, they changed their minds and said he was a god. That's what they decided. After all, <laughs> Paul's a god. Uh, verse 7, there was an estate nearby that belonged to uh, Publius, the chief official of the island, and he welcomed all of us into his home for three days and entertained us with hospitality. He, his uh, father was sick and in bed, suffering from fever and dysentery, and Paul went in to see him, and after some prayer, placed his hands upon him and healed the man. When this would, had happened, the rest of the sick on the island came and were cured. So now they have the same kind of healing ministry happening on the island who hospitably received Paul. They honored us in many ways, and when we were ready to sail, they furnished us with supplies that we needed. And so here you have this kind of uh, ongoing, uh, you know, story. Verse 11. After three months, we put out to sea in a ship that had wintered in the island. So they stayed there the rest of the season. It was an Alexandrian ship with a figurehead of the twin gods of Castor and Pollux on it. We put in at Syracuse and stayed there for three days. From there, we set sail and arrived in Regum. And the next day, the south wind came up. And on the following day, we reached to Petolia. I'm not even going to try on these words. Here we go. There we found some brothers who invited us to spend a week with them. There's the hospitality we've seen over and over again. And the brothers, uh, and so we came to Rome. Look, verse 14. And so we came to Rome. The promise has been kept. The brothers there had heard that we were coming, and they traveled as far as the form of Appius and the three taverns to meet us. I love that. And at the sight of these men, Paul thanked God and was greatly encouraged. When we got to Rome, Paul was allowed to live by himself with a soldier to guard him. So Paul has not gotten there to testify before Caesar, and he's being um, kept under guard. Three days later, he called together the leaders of the Jews. When they had assembled, Paul said to them, 
My brothers, I have done nothing against our people or against the customs of our ancestors. I was arrested in Jerusalem and handed over to the Romans. They examined me and wanted to release me because I was not guilty of any crime deserving death. But when the Jews objected, I was compelled to appeal to Caesar. Not that I had any charge to bring against my own people. For this reason, I have asked you, asked to see you and to talk with you. It's because of the hope of Israel that I am now bound with this chain. Again, he's talking about Jesus. We'll get to that. They replied, we have not received any news from Judea concerning you, and none of the brothers who have come from there have reported or said anything bad about you. But we want to hear about your views because we know that people everywhere are talking about are talking against this sect, again, of Judaism, this thing called Christianity. They arranged to meet Paul on a certain day and came in even larger numbers to the place where he was staying. And from morning until evening, now listen to what happens, he explained and declared to them the kingdom of God. And he tried to convince them about Jesus, about the law of Moses, and uh, from, the pro and from the prophets, that Jesus is the Messiah, the fulfillment of all the things they've been waiting for. Verse 24, some were convinced by what he said, but others would not believe. They disagreed amongst themselves, and they began to leave after Paul had made his final statement. This is what he said. The Holy Spirit spoke the truth to your forefathers when he said, through Isaiah the prophet, now that's an Old Testament prophet, go to this people and say, you will be ever hearing but never understanding. You'll be ever seeing but never perceiving. For this people's heart has become calloused. They hardly hear with their ears. They have their eyes closed. Otherwise, they might see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their hearts and turn and I would healed them. Therefore, I want you to know that God's salvation has been sent to the Gentiles, and they will listen. I just want to make a final point here in the book of Acts, and then we're going to read his closing statement there. And this is probably, I said, you know, it's hard to know the despondency of the world, the brokenness, and all the pain, and our own lives, and what we experience, right? And none of us are immune from it, by the way. Like, I don't know if you think, there's no Christianity pass on suffering, it doesn't exist, right? Um, as a matter of fact, it might be a pass into suffering, but at least you know it's the purpose for it in our own lives. But the reality is th that as much as that stuff is hard to deal with, there's a more painful reality that we face as believers in Jesus Christ. And you will, I believe, face it until the very last day. And I think, it, I think it's this, that not everyone is gonna believe. I mean, have you ever thought about this? This is the end of the story of the book of Acts, right? And Paul has come in and, and kind of done everything he can do. He's gone repeatedly to the Jewish people saying, this is the Messiah. He, it says here he spent time explaining from the prophets and the law of Moses that this is the Messiah. He's pleaded with them. He's even said that since you're rejecting it, it's going to go to the Gentiles. That's what's happened. The Gentiles are receiving the faith because you won't believe in Jesus Christ. And, uh, and yet, in the middle of all that, people wouldn't believe. Now, that's a hard thing to deal with, if I'm just being really honest with you guys. Because, you know, we, we talk about the gospel and, and what it means, and I know that God has given us the same spirit in this way, and, and we come together and we worship God and we praise God and we have our own battles and we fight our own battles and the spirit works within us and we're sanctified and, and, and this happens, but then we go out in life every day and we go, oh man, you need Jesus. 
you got a coworker talking to you about their situation, right? You got, you got something happening in your life. You see your boss or you see your, your, someone working for you. You see a, a fellow student at school and you're like, oh man, you need Jesus, right? But the painful reality is not everyone is gonna believe. I wanna say something. That doesn't mean we ought not share the gospel with them. <laughs> that's the opposite. We ought to share the gospel with them. The hope, that's what Paul does here. The hope is in Jesus Christ. Do you ever have that expectation that you would think, man, if I told the good news to that person, they should just immediately repent, get on their knees, God, I'm a sinner, save me, right? But how often does that happen? How often, listen, did it happen in your life? That someone saw the mess you were in and said, oh, they need Jesus. And you didn't turn, repent, ask forgiveness. But then one day, God gets hold of us. See, it's heartbreaking. It's heartbreaking to me that not all will believe. It's, it's, and, and here you have the Apostle Paul at the end of the book of Acts, and it says, when they heard his final statement, they walked away, and they wouldn't believe. Can you imagine? I'm just gonna give Paul a little bit of credit here. Can you imagine the length he went to to explain the gospel from scriptures? Can you imagine how profound the teaching was? <laughs> how many insights there were through the word, how much knitting together the entire story of people's lives to the moment that at the moment you go, they must now repent and believe. They must. It's going to happen. And they just go, and they walk away. Man, that's heartbreaking. Heartbreaking. But I want to tell you this. Someone talked to me about ministry, and they said, hey, how's ministry work? Blah, blah, what are you doing? You know, all stuff. And and I, and I was like sarcastic because that's how I kind of operate. God forgive me. And I said, uh, well, how did Jesus do it? All right, 12 people and one of them betrayed him. <laughs> you know what I mean? Oh, by the way, the other 11 didn't even believe <laughs> until one did, right? I mean, it's small. It's a miracle. But that's a hard reality. It's not everyone's going to believe. What, what, a, what a great way to end it. No, listen, the question isn't what everyone will believe. That's the wrong question. Listen, the question we need to ask is, will I believe? Will I believe? I sat with many people, and I've talked about faith, and they said, yeah, but this, yeah, but that, yeah, 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 yeah. And I say, but what about you? That's the only thing you've got to worry about. What about you? Are you going to believe the truth, or are you going to reject it? Some will reject it, but what about you? See, that's where we end the story. I don't know how you would have ended the story of the book of Acts, but listen to how it actually ends. After he says this, that some of you will be ever hearing but never, ever listening but never hearing, ever seeing but never perceiving, he says this. Verse 30. For two whole years, Paul stayed there in his own rented house, and he welcomed all who had come to see him. And here's the hope. And boldly, and without any hindrance, he proclaimed the kingdom of God and taught about the Lord Jesus Christ. I mean, if anybody had a right to go, forget it, right? But Paul doesn't. He keeps proclaiming the kingdom of God and proclaiming the truth about Jesus Christ, our Lord. And that's our call as well. I hope that you're believing. Honestly, and we spend so much time talking about this, I tend to think, yeah, yeah, you believe, right? But I hope in the storms of your life, we're believing, right? I hope all the time. And then I hope that we as a church body never stop proclaiming the gospel. 
in real ways, in practical ways, that we proclaim the hope of Jesus to the world. The world is hurting, and they need to hear it. They need to hear it, church. We ought to be the foremost hope-filled people because of the gospel. I'm going to uh, pray as we always do. I'm going to pray that God would in- intervene in the lives of ourselves and others when we need it. And maybe it's you today. Maybe you need God's intervention today. Maybe you're in that storm, and I'm just, I'm I'm just going to say, let God set his path, his course for you. Father God, we thank you so much for the opportunity we have to come into your presence and to know you more fully. We thank you for the great and, and uh, amazing story we hear from the book of Acts. And we thank you for this continued testimony of faithfulness that despite all signs to the contrary, the gospel is alive and well and changing lives. Father God, we spend so much time worrying about everything else and everything we can't control. But Father, would you help us to rightly understand the things that you've given us um, ownership over, that you've allowed to fall into our hands that we can turn to you and glorify you. Father, I pray that in our own lives uh, we would hear your voice more clearly than the voice of your enemy. Oh, Jesus, that you would, you would speak more loudly to the people that need to hear you. Oh, Father, that we would be the people in others' ears saying all hope is not lost. That we would combat the lies of the enemy in faith. Would you move among us in this way? Father, I'm going to pray an audacious prayer. I'm going to pray that for those here who are believing in your name for salvation, believing in your son, believing in resurrection, that you would put us in situations, that you would uniquely show us opportunities that we could be conduits of your hope, that we could be proclaimers of your gospel. And I know, Father, in my own heart, I feel that fear of like, what if I say the wrong thing? What if I do the wrong, how am I gonna, well, I don't be that weird person. And I'm sure that my friends here, all of us feel that in some way. I, I don't wanna be that one. But Father, would you give us an in, a grace, not to be preachy or holier than thou or come off as some self-righteous people, but just as a fellow sinner who's found grace in you that could say, no, there's a way forward for you. Would you empower us by your spirit's discernment to walk with people through difficulty, through heartache, and to have hope? We thank you so much for the good testimony we've heard from the book of Acts. We pray that the testimony be continue to be manifest in our own lives. The same spirit, same God, same salvation, same kingdom proclaimed all these years later. We love you so much. We thank you for your work. We trust you with it. May you keep your promises. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.